Yes. Oh, wait. Oh. I'm hearing you. Yep. I'm hearing Pat Keenan sounds. Yep. And I already hit record. All right. Oh, Jesus. I mean. Yep. I mean, um, <laughs> I don't know, whatever you say. You're already on the clock. When you don't uh, say Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, man? Not, not bad. I just need one minute. I just dropped something and there we go. Uh, might as well just start because anything we say. I'll probably use anyway. You're, you're cutting it up to make me sound like an asshole anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, I just got to, I'll do my little intro and then yeah, we'll, go. we'll get going. Welcome to the Hudson Valley Disc Golf Podcast, ranked 191st last month in United States Golf Podcasts, according to Carlos at Pod Status. He emailed me, so it must be true. My guest tonight is a former board member for the nonprofit organization Westchester Disc Golf Enthusiasts, more commonly referred to as Wedge. Welcome back to the podcast, Jack Bradley. Thank you, Pat. It's wonderful of you to have me back. Uh, was that a sufficient enough mea culpa for my previous Grateful Dead intro? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that's, uh, that's, remains unforgivable. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, you haven't been able to play recently. Why is that? Uh, I sprained my ankle uh, at FDR State Park in the middle of a deadbeat doubles. Pretty bad sprain. I have bad ankles to begin with, but... Uh, <laughs> This was a bad one, uh, to the extent that Todd Springer had to go get my Jeep and drive to the ninth tee, and uh, oh, wow. the deadbeats loaded me in and pointed me uh, pointed me towards home, and I drove off, and uh, I ain't been able to walk good since. <laughs> well, it's my journalistic responsibility to ask, but is this some ploy to garner sympathy votes since you're once again running for the wedge board? I'm going to take every vote that I can get, uh, sympathy votes, I'll take hate votes, any kind of like grudge <laughs> vote. You know, some people uh, have indicated that one of the reasons I'm running is that I'm a glutton for punishment, <laughs> and they have no problem with punishing me. So I'll take your grudge vote, uh, sympathy vote. I'm offering cash and favors for votes, uh, <laughs> gift cards. <laughs> well, I, I assume that in addition to the bum ankle, you must have also hit your head. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> that, that, that's been suggested. Uh, well, before before we get into details about why you're running, sure. Uh, I just had a few wedge questions. I think we talked about it in the past, but uh, I, I didn't want to go back and listen and all that. I'm lazy. Um, who came up with the name Wedge? I would say that is, is probably if you if you had to pick one person, it's uh, uh, Mike Grossman. Okay, but it was a somewhat of a, a long drawn out. Uh, conversation that was happening on the NIFA forum, which a decade ago, if you're going to have a conversation about disc golf on the East Coast, it happened on the NIFA forum, talking about what we should call. So, so what we should be called. Some of the uh, the other contenders were uh, because we didn't want to be provincial and limit ourselves to uh, Westchester. You'll appreciate this. Mm-hmm. That uh, maybe we ought to include Putnam and even Dutchess County. Oh. So one of the uh, early options was going to be We Put Dutch. <laughs> that's pretty cool uh, uh and then this one would have stepped all over you uh, which would have been uh, just the uh, lower hudson valley disc golf club yeah um what about that first logo that's the one with the the, the stump right the cut yeah that's okay. uh one of my early uh attempts at graphic design which everybody's early attempt at graphic design is going and stealing somebody else's um pictures <laughs> and yeah, trying yeah. to make them into yours this was no different i think that there's a couple of dictionaries or encyclopedias where if you type in wedge, it will, <laughs> it will, it will actually show you that piece of art. Uh, That's great. That's so great. it's stolen. Um, so FDR was built around 2000, right? Yeah. 99 actually. Okay. 99. You had been playing at that point or no? No. Okay. I wasn't, I didn't think you did, but what, where did people play before that? Cause isn't that around the same year that uh, Warwick opened around 2000 as well, right? Yeah. Um, so the answer to that question is people didn't, (laughs) (laughs) but the longer answer to that question is, um, Kisco. A lot of people played Mm -hmm. at Kisco was, uh, Steve Brinster's first course, first course he ever played. And of course it's been 
in the ground since 1977. I like to say it, it is one of 25 courses that claim to be the second oldest course in the country. We know it's not the first um, because we know what the first is, but there are literally about 25 other courses that uh, Ed Hedrick got in the ground that year. Mm-hmm. And Kisco's one of them. Kensco Dam. Kensco Dam also. Just yep. in trivia research, I don't know if it was the, I think it has the same year. It, I think it is the not. same year. I, I think, uh, you know, Ed wasn't from here. Ed came here. Um, so I think he got, you know, more than his idea was to get more than one thing done. It makes sense. But yeah, pe- people played uh, uh, before there was FDR. Cranberry, I believe, um, predates FDR. I believe uh, somebody can yell at me and correct me if that's not the case. Uh, with Wedge and Warwick being basically like you know within a year, or was that a, a coordinated effort, or was that just happenstance that two courses got built around the same time? I uh, so I don't believe it was coordinated. What, what I can tell you is that all of those people, the people who developed Warwick. Uh, and Bill and the guys who put the early efforts in at Cranberry, it was a small group and they're all friends. Or I should say we're friends. I assume they're still friends. But uh, most of those guys knew each other. They, they didn't have a lot of places to play, period. Um, and so once disc golf got a hold of you, there weren't a lot of places to play. And um, they all played the same few courses. Around 99, 2000, there was an explosion of courses. Um, I don't know. I was looking recently at, at when Budsies was put in, but I think that's that's 90s. Yeah, I was going to say, because they're. I, th- I want to say they're close, like pushing 30 years on that ice bowl, aren't they? 25 or 30. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know as well as maybe I should. Um, but you have to realize all these guys, like, but like you know, Whit Cooper, uh, uh, you know, and Bill and Dan Doyle, um, they've known each other for decades. It, 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 as far as I know, most of these people will have met um, at Kisco hmm. or uh, possibly Cranberry, uh, Cranberry again. I don't have the date on the install at Cranberry. Somebody's going to know better than me. No, that's cool. Was Wedge formed, the, the club formed before or after FDR? After. So. There's definitely a community there, mm-hmm. you know, ahead of the formalization of the club. Yeah. The club was uh, essentially formed ahead of the uh, incorporation of the club. So socially, the club existed. Socially, the club was functioning without bylaws, without structure. But Bill built a community around uh, the work that he was doing and the events that he was throwing. You know, there were tags for years ahead of the creation of a club. There were uh, these DR Kisco tags that were floating around, and they were actually retreads from some tags that uh, Cranberry had ordered and didn't like. (laughs) And a local artist uh, took the tags, uh, (laughs) which were said to be the, I believe, the ugliest tags that Cran had ever seen. Uh, an artist did some uh, original painting on the tags to convert them to FDR Kisco tags. After that, it became a little bit more formal. I want to say somewhere around 2011, Ernie Motten, who uh, Long Island disc golfers will recognize as the father of disc golf on Long Island. <laughs> Before he was that, uh, he went and bought what uh, are affectionately referred to as the cow tags and these I, i've heard i've seen okay them. so he bought 50 of these cow tags ahead of the fdr fool's fest uh that year for my money those are the first sort of official wedge tags the name for the club had already been kicking around angelo masha uh, right around that same time kicked up the facebook group and was really the first guy to like wholesale reach out to new players and drag them in so I would say that it took from, you know, 1999 until something to the effect of like 2011 before Wedge was becoming realized. But it was a fairly strong community before that. And it was, uh, as I say, centered around Bill's collective efforts to make the course better and to make uh, and run good events, you know, uh, ahead of, you know, the, the newer crew. Uh, when I say newer, I mean myself. Um, and and Jeff Greenberg and um, some other people who took organization at the club to a higher level builded everything, everything before that. If the course needed a sign, you know, Bill 
pulled everybody he knew to get some money to make the signs. And if, uh, you know, he wanted to buy tea pads or baskets, uh, same thing. And if he wanted to run event an, an event and he wanted to have a stamped disc or uh, some other premium that he was handing out at the event, you know, he put all that on his credit card. That's how events were run, wow. uh, at least in this area, ahead of the club. It was Bill shelling out and then trying to recoup it. Hmm. And... <laughs> To his credit, he didn't always recoup it, and I don't think he really cared. I think he just wanted to run fun events and 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 establish the community that he did. All right, so he was on the original board, right? He was. <laughs> I drafted him. Okay. When I came to Bill with the idea of Wedge, <laughs> I didn't know him as well as I do today, and he was basically like, yeah, whatever, kid. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to put my name on it. Nobody knew me. As soon as they did, they didn't like me, so it was much better that we, <laughs> we put Bill up. Is the the figurehead? Not that he didn't do tons, and mm-hmm. and and not that he wasn't a key member of of that first board. But yes, he was, and uh, uh, he really didn't care. And uh, so it was you, Bill. I'm guessing here. I'm, yeah, I'm, go ahead. I'm gonna say <laughs> Jeff Greenberg. Yes, uh, Angelo. Yes, and, you're done. You're done now. Oh, so there were only four. Okay, and Angelo was on the board. Uh, he's basically, I had to throw four names on the incorporation papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angelo made the most sense socially. Uh, you know, he had done the most, you know, to help bring in a, a membership and especially new members. So, uh, I thought we needed Bill. I thought we, we definitely needed Jeff. Uh, I tell everybody that will listen, if you want to start a disc golf club, find yourself a Jeff Greenberg and then everything <laughs> else is easy. Uh, and then, he's the, uh, the treasurer for those that don't know, right? Yeah, and he's the he's the treasurer of Wedge, and he he's done all the heavy lifting, um, and it's five hundred one c three, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I incorporated the club, and you have to start by incorporating as a five hundred one three, which is a not for profit extension. Adds uh, uh, turns your organization into a, a charitable organization. Jeff did all the heavy lifting to get that done, and that is what lets us take donations that people can write off. We're actually a charity. Wedge does a ton of work for charity, other charities, but we're a charity in our own right. So uh, not only are we tax exempt, exempt from taxes when we buy materials for things like tea pads or baskets, people can also donate to Wedge, receive tax deductions, and it it lets us operate in a different way than if we were just a nonprofit. And Angelo, uh, we put as an officer. Angelo, at about that time, decided to dedicate himself to school and becoming the doctor that he is and was Nerd. unable to actively participate on the board. And then, uh, so what was your next guest going to be? Oh, well, I had a, it. It was between two, Daver or Kimmelman. So it, uh, it was Kimmelman. Kimmelman replaced Angelo on the board. Oh, okay. He remains one of our biggest advocates. He's the guy in the parking lot, you know, selling memberships. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, he was automatic. Uh, I went to Angelo and, you know, said, you know, can we let you off the hook here and and put uh, Dave Kimmelman on? He's doing a lot of work, and uh, which Angelo was absolutely 100% fine with. He knew he couldn't dedicate time to it then. I'm super stoked that it has become a priority for him. Oh, Basically, yeah. as soon as free time came his way, um, you know, he added Wedge to his list of priorities and the club has a great leader in Angelo. So when did it go to five on the board? When did it go to five? I didn't prep him for anything. I'm just letting everybody know. <laughs> Let me get circuitous on your ass. Yeah. Um, I think it went to five before I left. We knew I was going to leave. We wanted somebody really active to replace me. You know, to be honest, we didn't want to, we, we didn't want to throw it out to a vote. Um, we felt that we knew who would be best uh, for the club in that moment. It had to be somebody for whom it was going to be, you know, a massive priority, which, um, you know, at the time, it wasn't the first priority of, of the other three board members. Everybody's got something else going on. Mm-hmm. But the person that we all felt was going to make it a big part of his life and, and, and dedicate enough to it that it was going to keep going because we really kind of thought that me walking away, uh, Bill was already planning to uh, walk away. It was kind of a sink or swim moment for the club. And we so we knew that guy was Adam Gutman. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that we ran an election to put Adam Gutman on. I think we, I think we just added a fifth position 
Mm-hmm. And we pointed at him. Someone's going to have to correct me if I have this wrong. My mind isn't what it used to be. <laughs> you really shouldn't vote for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but we added Adam Gutman there, and I walked away. And that left a space open, which I believe was filled by Aaron. And somewhere in there with Bill dropping out and eventually Aaron dropping out, uh, Eric Bowers and, and Derek Stoltenberg came on board. One thing that I think is really uh, sort of interesting and cool about this election is at the end of it, you are going to have the first two democratically elected board members on Wedge. Every <laughs> other single person has been appointed. Not to, I think, any great flaw in the in the board's operating, basically. No. Uh, the people who have been appointed to the board <laughs> would have run unopposed. I was going to say, you can, you can make the argument, yeah, that, that yeah, would, would have been unopposed. That is kind of what's cool about, about this one. It, it, it sort of tells me that, um, yeah, you know, the, the thing is alive and it's working the way it's supposed to and it's walking. So right now it's uh, Jeff, Eric, Gutman, and Derek, and Angelo's still, right? But and, he is, uh, he's running as well? Uh, yeah, so the way we uh, have it structured sort of unofficially is that, you know, with the board of five, two spots would come up in the first year and the other three would come up the following year. And that way you'd never have a wholesale swap out of the board. I think Long Island does something similar. Yeah, that's right. So and and Long Island, that's officially the way we set it up when we set up the Long Island board. The Long Island board is a little bit more structured than the wedge board is. So uh, the board chose to add a, a sixth spot this year, and uh, there were two spots already going to be up. So the spots that were up this year were Angelo's spot and Jeff Greenberg's spot. And the board, in its wisdom, decided to protect the treasurer spot. Mm-hmm. When we first started the board, it, it had a very um, typical structure of president, vice president, secretary, treasurer. When these guys took over the board, they eliminated those roles um, so that, you know, no one was beholden by uh, uh, by the title to, to what they were responsible for. They each act equally. There's no president. They're all president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But coming into uh, this election, we got into the first uh, space ever where there were actually candidates. You know, in the past, we basically announced, uh, you know, the person who served in this capacity last year is very happy to run again. And if they're running unopposed, we won't call for a vote. And that is how everything has gone up until now. This year, however, with the announcement of the extra spot, we got candidates. Uh, Daver uh, put his name in the ring and Barrett Jones uh, uh, put her name in the ring and myself. And so essentially the way it always would have worked, there's four candidates for two spots. Mm-hmm. Um, but the board has decided to protect that treasurer spot in such a way that they're only going to accept qualified candidates for Jeff's spot. And yeah. if they don't have a qualified candidate, then Jeff will go unopposed. So they made an announcement after the initial announcement to clarify that they're asking for somebody to uh, you know, have bookkeeping skills or accounting skills. Yeah. And frankly, there's just no way that you drop in and replace Jeff without like a lot of pain to everybody. I would nominate <laughs> Gary Mason. Yeah, I, I nominated Gary Mason as well. Shockingly, more stuff to do. You know, not not <laughs> in, he, he's shockingly not interested oh, <laughs> in the he declined. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts personally? I mean, you like the idea of the six member? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm anti turning down qualified, enthusiastic help. I think the Lidge board just went to seven. So, I, you know, I, I have no no problem with it whatsoever. I think the the problem comes if you have. Um, you know, sort of a lame duck board yeah. member, which can happen. You know, I've, I've, I've seen people, I've served with people who, you know, for whatever reason, really weren't contributing like a board member. And there are lots of reasons that that can happen. Lives can change. Priorities can change. Yeah. But once that's happening, you know, it's time for that board member to go away. And then frankly, if there's not, <laughs> if there's not going to be qualified, enthusiastic candidates, it's probably time for that spot to go away. Yeah. I was going to say, expand and then contract to I a degree. I think so. I, I, I think there has to be flexibility there mm-hmm. because, you know, if you, you know, Lidge has established a, a seven player board. If they write that in stone, they're going to, you know, they could be begging people to to take that seventh spot or the sixth spot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it ebbs and flows. You know, n- none of our clubs are big enough to just to just say, "God damn it, we're going to have seven people on the board." So yeah, I I I, I like the six people if if all six are contributing in a, contributing in a meaningful way. And you know, I'd like to see it you know go away or be amended if if um you can't find that many volunteers. So so how long have you been thinking about running a uh, rerunning? I guess running again. Running for the first time, actually, according to I'm what right, you said. I'm running for the first <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the first time around, I told you, I'm, I, I installed myself. Yeah. <laughs> How long have I been thinking about it? Uh, first of all, I haven't really – I haven't stopped much of what I was doing in the first place. I was going to say, you're, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't run events, but I am a designer on the course at FDR, and I'm a designer on the course at uh, Mount Kisco. I lead or have a big part in any of the big projects. So we've got a project at FDR to replace all the tees with paver tees. I'll lead that charge. But I also am deeply involved in trying to bring new courses. And I was involved before I left. I stayed involved. You know, I'm I'm still in lots of conversations. I have my fingers in lots of pies. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's on both fronts, on on the on sort of the course work front and on the course development front, it's become really clear that I could have easier, more seamless conversations with the board and and vice versa if I was on it. Mm. If when the board meets, I'm there. So that's a logistical reason. And I've been thinking about it almost the whole time. But there are a couple of projects between the T-pad project materializing and some course development things that have um, sort of gotten hot and heavy within the last, say, nine months. That's where it's become really obvious to me that I could get more done and and communication could happen faster if I were back on the board. The paver tees. I'm just curious as I've never heard of any thoughts of changing it. Are people not happy with it? So the rubber tee pads are wearing out. Oh, okay. They're falling apart and, and they can't be replaced. The material that they're made of, um, I'm led to believe the contractor who makes it you need to buy enough of it to line an aircraft carrier to buy it at all. There's some substitute rubber tee pads out there. They're not nearly as good as what we have. They don't drain like what we have. They're slippery. And ours are 20 years old in most cases, and they're falling apart. So there has to be a replacement there. Uh, we chose paver tees, partly because of our expertise in installing them. We have a lot of guys that were involved in the uh, Kisco renovation, where mm-hmm. we put in 18 brand new paver tees, John Garb, Ryan Korsakowski. Uh, we have a handful of guys who could do the whole course by themselves if they wanted to, having done Mount Kisco. Gotcha. But in addition to that, we have maybe 30 volunteers who also know the drill. That's part of the reason we picked the pavers. The only other option we really considered was uh, AstroTurf, and Bill and I both remain unconvinced about its its durability and, and what it's going to be like to deal with in snow and ice, and also just how long they're going to last. And the, the paver T-pad is a 20, 25-year solution. The way they're at, at Beacon, they can be individually replaced, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so- if you just crack one, you can... You can, swap. yeah, you can just replace the paper. Now, uh, you walk through Kisco and you're going to see we've got a good solid 40 or 50 that need replacing. The Kisco experience with paver T pads, are you happy with that so far? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. And I mean, so the interesting thing about them is, is uh, I mean, the, the quickest way to represent it is, uh, and this is true of any, any surfacing option, no matter what it is, concrete pavers, the surface will ultimately take the shape of the substrate. That means the extent to which you can compact the dirt, gravel, you know, whatever's in the ground uh, under your pavers, eventually your surface is going to take that shape. Some pavers are going to settle in. Um, some pavers will get suspended up higher on, on you know, rocks that are under there that, that weren't accounted for. Uh, this is a long-winded way of saying when we put those in, we knew we were, you know, three years away, two years away. From having to pull many out, regrade the substrate, and reinstall the pavers. That was always a part of the installation. It hasn't happened, and it's, it's, it's something that we, we know has to happen. Um, but some of those, those T-pads, I would say you know, the majority of those T-pads are flawless. No cracks, no settling. The worst couple of T-pads, which are the T-417 
and 12, which is Pinball Alley. 17 is the one that throws across the sled hill. Uh, 12 is the one uh, for Pinball Alley. Those were both vandalized by uh, indigenous tribes who didn't like the tea pads there. Um, in addition to that, hole 12, we built it late in November. It was the last build on the course. Some of our substrate was frozen. <laughs> so we knew that that tea pad was going to sink um, when we put it in. But uh, all in all, you walk through that. Yes, I'm very happy with the with the Kisco tea pads. And all they 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 really need is uh, the the ones that that aren't perfect. They need the pavers taken out. They need the uh, substrate to be uh, regraded and compacted, and the pavers put back in. And then they will probably be flawless. You may still have one or two pavers over the course of the following two three years that sinks or dips. But ultimately, when that's taken care of, that tea pad is going to be there for 20 years, 25 years. Um, and as you say, the ones that, the ones that do crack, those can be shoveled out, leveled, and, and you can put a replacement in. And we have the replacements. They're sitting behind the pool at Mount Kisco. We have plenty of replacements to, to fix those up. So it's really just a labor question. Yeah, that's for most right. Of it. Exactly right. And we're in better shape at FDR than we are at Kisco. At FDR, we're looking to put these new paver tees directly over the top of the existing tees. And those tees have been compacted by man for 20 yeah. years. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so you're just uh, taking the mats off. At Kisco, uh, it, it was a different story. Most tees did not go where the old tees were exactly. You know, we were in soft earth and, and you know, we really didn't know for sure what was going to sink and what wasn't. All right. Well, uh, have you voted yet? I have voted. Yes. All right. I'm not going to ask you who you voted for. I assume you voted for yourself, but don't tell me. I don't know if that's legal. Uh, <laughs> we didn't mention uh, Daver. Daver did drop out. He did. Um, and I'll say this. Um, I was never able to implement it. But when I was there, I thought that we should create um, um, like a player's advisory panel. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think Daver should be in a position where his voice counts. Sean Ryan, one of the Ryan twins, expressed interest uh, early on. And I think when he saw I was running, he decided he didn't want to be in that race. That was Daver's stated reason for not wanting to be in the race. Uh, he, he looked at candidates that he didn't want to uh, to leverage out mm. um, at what he thought was probably the expense of the, the club overall. But there are a bunch of people who, who's, who, who would like to see their uh, opinions heard. Their voices matter, uh, and I, I don't. I don't think we can turn those people away. I think it's really critical to get a woman's perspective in 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 club decision making. I think that they know uh, what's fun for them, what's not fun for them. You know, I, I think Barrett would be a great representative in that capacity, uh, whether she wins election or she doesn't. Do you think? And I'm I'm not to interrupt, but do you think that there's enough female interest? at FDR to do something like Long Island has with the ladies of Lidge, the yep, ladies yep. of Long Island disc golf. Yep. And that could almost, if you had a group like that, that could almost be an, an advisory, an advisory group all yeah. of the, uh, on their own. You Absolutely. Know what I mean? And I, I think ladies of Lidge uh, just went ahead and empowered themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> they automatically have a voice. I don't think, I don't think you can do anything um, on yeah. Long Island you know, without knowing what, what uh, Ladies of Lidge thinks about it. And yes, I, I think there is that kind of playership here. I think um, that the better job we can do of making the sport less discriminatory, there'll be greater ease of entry for women. And, and when I say discriminatory, I don't just mean inappropriate behavior from thick-headed mm -hmm. men. The sport is discriminatory as it is. Wedge does not have a layout between the two courses that is appropriate for beginning women to throw. Mm -hmm. There's not a design there that's appropriate for even, uh, uh, forget about women, new players, just brand new, not, not even wrecks, just entry-level players. The, the fairway-shaping elements in our courses are too far from the tee to be fairway shaping elements for many women and, and newer players. And that in itself is discriminatory. It makes the first time out not fun. And 
I think better design. I, I think women and entry level player design uh, is is going to go a long way to uh, bringing more women and younger players into the sport quickly. We know it's addictive. We know it's fun. <laughs> but the 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 fact is, I I think you know most men can pretty quickly work their way towards um, the fairway defining elements factoring for them. But there are you know there are some women and some holes on on our layouts that absolutely discriminate uh, against them. They might as well be playing in a soccer field because they can't reach the first tree that defines the fairway. Well, I did notice this weekend that I know there have been flags before out on the course, but now they seem more prominent. I haven't been to FDR in a while, but... Oh, oh, yeah. So those are the rec tees. Yes. Um, so th- uh, that's something that we're making a, uh, we're, we're making a priority. Um, uh, we marked a set of rec tees. Um, we didn't mark them well. Um, you know, I play them with my kids. Other people play them with their kids. Uh, you know, I happen to know where they are, so I still go out and play them as par twos, just as mm-hmm. sort of approach practice. Good, good practice. Where and you can get a full round in. Sure, and they're and they're fun, and they're designed. They're not just you know, they're not just shorter versions of of the same holes. They're they're designed to put fairway shaping elements. You know, I was going to say I was so happy both rounds yesterday. I played in the, the double basket doubles on hole four. I landed within the circle of of that flat of the the short. You know what <laughs> yep. I mean? And I'm like, that's that's your landing spot. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I did appreciate that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, and so, well, well, so PDGA guidelines uh, for course development suggest that your best tees and your best signage be on your shortest layout, and that at FDR is, is what we're going to uh, in, endeavor to do in, in in this next year. Bill and I are looking at shoring up those holes, uh, deciding on where they're going to play to. They're going to be uh, red level, which is the entry level PDGA tee. So they're going to be red tees. We haven't decided necessarily which baskets they're going to play to. But once we do, those baskets, whether whether it's a white basket or a yellow basket, it's going to have a red flag on it. And so I you see. know if you're standing on a red tee that you're throwing to the basket with the red flag. That's actually pretty good instead of just picking one color. Right. Doing it like that because it opens up more flexibility. So in addition to establishing it, we're also going to create tees there. I don't know what they're uh, what the material is actually going to be, but they're going to be, you know, good, solid tees. Uh, and they're going to have a sign that is at least as good and descriptive as, you know, the regular tees have. So we're going to try and comply with that PDGA design mandate so that, you know, when you're brand new and showing up, like the bestest, shiniest uh, looking signs are, and most informative and, and, you know, making sure you know where you're throwing to and, and where you're going next, those are going to be the red tees at FDR. The, the next right. thing that's going to happen at FDR is a set of nine red tees. Why doesn't Wedge have a Star Wars themed tournament so we can get a different Wedge Antilles disc every year? <laughs> that is a fantastic question. I was thinking this the other day because over the course of the last year, we've had so many new players yeah. and, there's, and there's nothing that Jeff Greenberg likes better than to show new players that he has a Star Wars disc and they don't. Now, I can see he's been guilted into giving one away. <laughs> uh, but I was I was thinking that the other night. Maybe it's time to uh, maybe it's time like to get a different artist rendering each year. You know, even even if it's a like the disc is a destroyer and the stamp. I don't know. But oh, you, yeah. You put a you Star know, Destroyer up there. Like, Come but, on. You know. <laughs> Well, I mean, the wedge one was attractive for obvious oh, yeah. reasons, right? Yeah. So when I sent that stamp to Discraft, <laughs> they sent me a letter that was like, yeah, no. <laughs> We're not going toe-to-toe with uh, Lucas Arts over your stupid buzz. Um, and I was like, well, it's it's not official art. I stole it from the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I actually had to go. So I, I found it on DeviantArt. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was an artist who's a, a woman uh, living in India, and I was able to get her contact information and tell her what I wanted to do with the disc. You know that it was fundraising for a nonprofit, and and she wrote a letter to Discraft on our behalf. Uh, wow! You know, uh, explaining to them that the art was her original art and that we had the rights to use it. Wow! Super cool. That'd be a reason to keep doing the same, you know, the same. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yep. I'm, I'm all about it. the The answer is I'm all about it. Uh, Star Wars themed competitions and Star Wars themed discs. I started playing a few years after, you know, Wedge had started and that disc had come out. I don't know when it came out, 
but I, I went to Dave Kimmelman, you know, if you need something from Wedge, you yeah. go to Dave Kimmelman. I said, Dave, you got to hook me up with this. And he got them from somewhere. And I got, two, I think I got two of them and gave one to a friend, big Star Wars fan. You but. know, what's funny. We couldn't get people interested in them when we had them. They sat around in the Wedge store forever. <laughs> We'd That's put them crazy. up on like the on the winning table. We, we were pricing them the same eventually. And so when they first came out, we wanted twenty five dollars for them mm-hmm. because it was a fundraiser. Yeah, they didn't all go for that, and we started putting them out just in the wedge store, same prices like non stamped buses, and nice. they just stuck around forever. They're all gone now, but yeah, I'm glad I <laughs> but, got. But I mean, one. I'm telling you, years they were sitting in the bins after uh, after tournaments, and people weren't picking them up. Now, now I think you get a couple bucks for them. No doubt. Um, okay. So last time we spoke was early on in the pandemic, uh, sidestepping some major issues in the country. I just wanted to ask you a couple practical questions. Yeah. Uh, you, you have, how many kids you have? Two. And how, how old? Uh, Xander is about to turn 13 and Charlie's about to turn 11 a month later. The reason I ask is because I assume you have been dealing with, uh, the schooling situation. Sure. Is that what they call it, the schooling situation? Um, yeah, it's the, it's the schooling situation. <laughs> I've asked, I've asked like Brian. Or, or, a, or, or Pat in my home, the situation. Uh, what, bad. what has been your experience? It's bad. It's so I, I have two very different experiences. Um, Xander, my 12 year old, is and always has been a really great learner. I don't think that I have to send him to school anymore for him to. Uh, become as informed and as smart as anyone I know. Mm-hmm. He's going to find it. He knows how to find information. He knows how to parse information. You know, when I say that, I mean he. You know, he already considers the source of the information that he's gotten and cross references it. And all of this just to say that I don't worry about Xander as a learner. Mm-hmm. He's doing okay with it. He hates it. Because it's bad and it's not social and he doesn't know his classmates. You know, his classmates are postage stamps on his nine-inch Chromebook. Mm. Charlie is my 10-year-old and he's a difficult student uh, to begin with. He requires a lot of attention. Um, I also like to say he's the smart one uh, because he is very smart, but he's a bad candidate for remote learning. Mm. A really bad candidate. And he takes he takes more supervision than, you know, Naomi and I can offer over the course of a day to make sure he's, you know, he's already hacked our email account to send a letter from me to his teacher to explain that the internet went out. Mm. <laughs> and that's, that's why he awesome. couldn't log on. <laughs> Little bastard. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, he really hates it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be there, you know, sitting in front of his screen all day. Um, you know, he, he was a difficult in-classroom student, but where a teacher can make a real connection with him, he's fine. And nobody can make a real connection with him over a nine-inch Chromebook. So it's the answer is it's hard. We're doing it the best we can. Uh, our school system is doing the best they can. Like, And Charlie's teacher is absolutely doing the best she can. And, and I think her efforts are landing well with other students and, you know, not as well with some. So it, it, it's hard. It's really hard. Uh, school, you know, school's hard. This is not the way that school works. No. All right. Uh, well, I had decided since uh, Time Magazine can do the computer as their person of the year, I'm doing COVID as the disc golf player of the year. <laughs> the Hudson Valley Disc Golf Podcast player of the year. COVID. Because that virus has done more for the sport in the last nine months than anyone. And it'll be the summer before people, you know, are out are out and that. about normally. So it's going to get bigger. It's crazy the amount of people that have been playing. Yeah, it's a good pick. Um <laughs> Because uh, it it might be player of the decade. Yeah, right. You know, it's been everything that it could be. Uh, it's 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 been terrifying, uh, but also enabling. I think it's created a lot of opportunities. COVID is an opportunity for the disc golf community. Uh, it, it 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 could be a blight, but it should be regarded as an opportunity because it's it's bringing people out to the course. You know, I saw lots of uh, complaints early on. Mm-hmm. You know, as the other sports fell, uh, we got more and more participation. Hmm. And unlike other sports, uh, let's just say ball golf, uh, etiquette doesn't get enforced. You go out to play ball golf and etiquette is, is, is it, you know, half of what happens to you when you first, you know, step onto a golf course. It's forced upon you by the playership. Uh, and I think disc golfers are not used to um, enforcing etiquette or protocol. 
Um, you know, there's no pro shop that you have to come through. There's no signs telling you what to do for the most part. And I think that basically, just as disc golfers, for the most part, uh, you know, we think as long as you're having fun and staying out of our good time, <laughs> do it the way you want. And I think what I'm referring to most there is, is sort of the mob golf that can yeah. happen. Uh, and there was definitely a lot of mob golf uh, going into uh, uh, April yeah. or even as early as March, uh, where people turned to disc golf, either because they were discovering it for the first time or, uh, you know, I hear a ton of first time since college. Mm players out there who, you know, they have a bag in their closet that they haven't touched for a decade. <laughs> and they come out with some real nice looking collectibles right. <laughs> that people try to trade with them for. Um, but my point is, 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 is uh, I think it's an opportunity. And, and if clubs look at it as an opportunity and make sure to, you know, reach out to indoctrinate uh, new players to make sure that, you know, they have the most fun and the, the existing playership uh, continues to have fun. Uh, you know, we have an opportunity every time that we have a conversation to sort of pump up that it's a volunteer driven sport and that everything that, you know, is happening out here, everything that's available to you is because of the efforts of volunteers. Uh, I think these are these are explanations that have to happen in order for it to be an opportunity. You know, we existing players have to have these conversations. And uh, as, as long as that happens, it, I, I really just see it as an opportunity for the sport. I'm glad you're running because I, as much as I like the people who are on the wedge board, I like them because they each have a value. If that makes sense. Like not that you guys said, like you said earlier, you don't have assigned roles, but still there's each person has a, a, a part and you, you would, in my opinion, and um, among other things, but one of the main things would be the tradition and, and all that kind of like, a, you know, keeping the younger kids, like at least reminding them about, you know, so this this was um I I appreciate that Pat. Um but this was one of the reasons that I was recruited for and was willing to serve on the uh the Lidge board when it started. Long Island Disc Golf was uh you know at, at its start a little bit of sort of wild wild west which gave Long Island a really sort of a unique and fantastic if slightly dangerous um trajectory. Fantastic because those guys came up with, you know, and continue to uh, uh, come up with new ideas. They're innovating. But there was no shortage of, of, frankly, ideas that have been tried everywhere that didn't work. And it took some perspective to know, like, why they wouldn't work. So I stayed on that board, um, honestly, for as, for as long as I thought my perspective was needed. And as soon as I thought they had a board full of people who had, you know, adequate perspective to keep the the, the club from steering down dead ends, I, I stepped away. Hmm. And I'm not, I, I don't, I don't want to oversell my perspective. There are certainly people in the sport that have wider uh, knowledge and, and greater perspective than I do. But I, I think it's a thing that, that that I can bring, and I'm glad to be running for a six spot. I'm glad to be running for the number six because I really would not want to unseat any of the five. Mm. I think they're all doing great stuff, and they're doing different stuff, and they each have their competencies. And there's, there's, you know, uh, I, I don't think I'd be running um, if my only choice. Uh, you know, in there was going to be to unseat Adam Gutman or oh yeah, or Angelo Masha or 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 Eric Bowers or or Derek Stoltenberg, who've all brought uh you know new fun things. Uh, Are you for sure? Because I'd do. probably I'd want to boot off Adam. No, Gutman. Yeah, he's a pain in the ass. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep Derek. That summer, that summer, fall, winter slam demic was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some the uh, the twenty twenties. <laughs> Slash 21. Slash, still, I don't want to make fun of Derek. It's no, such a great it's still idea. It's a great idea. So it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> right. We, we could pick you know, if we had to get rid of one guy, it's Greenberg. Well, yeah, but we will but never get Mason to job. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. I'm just kidding. He doesn't listen to your podcast. Exactly. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Well, does with, with this influx, do you think that there should be less emphasis? I remember a few years back, there was a big thing about having a tournament this weekend or that weekend, that seems to have gone out the window, at least for the short term. Yeah. So 
Um, let me make sure I'm, I'm responding to the, uh, to, to the question that you're asking. I, mm-hmm. I, I think you're asking about sort of the sensitivity that, that clubs and tournament directors seem to be having, you know, uh, uh, vis-a-vis like stepping on other people's events, etc. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. I always thought that, um, that situation would just mature. That there's, you know, there was uh, sort of an older wisdom when events were few and far between that, you know, for Christ's sake, don't throw the Cranberry Classic, uh, you know, the same weekend as Animal Fest. And then the other three weeks of the month, there's nothing, you know. And then there's nothing. Right. So I've always thought we would just grow out of that. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I I think is what happened. You know, obviously. There's less coordination to, you know, to need to happen in the age of COVID. Mm-hmm. But I already felt like that was winding down. Um, I think for the most part, the, the clubs are better organized today than they were, uh, you know, two or three years ago, even that just about everybody running events is more sensitive to um, making sure they're not stepping on another event. And, and then, you know, sometimes, uh, you, you know, we got a couple more courses in and there are a couple more clubs or, or, or just organized people running events and you might get two B tiers in the same, you know, mm. weekend within, you know, a hundred miles of each other. PDGA has a has a specific distance guideline uh, yeah. for tournaments. And I don't happen to know what it is. And it is variable between tiers. But yeah, I don't think that we're uh, you know, even in this area today, I, I no longer feel like we're in danger of running big events on top of another big event. You know, I think if, you know, Bridgeport runs a B tier and and we run a B tier and uh, Skylands runs a B tier, I think there's enough communication, enough, uh, enough back channeling going on to yeah. generally keep that from happening. And and also, I think we're less sensitive to it. I mean, it used to, uh, I can remember we got in big trouble for running an ace race over the top of, I don't know, Warwick Ams. Mm. <laughs> you know, Warwick Ams, like a two-day event, like... Mm somehow uh uh you know wedges ace race of largely rec players was stepping on that i don't think that that's in the dna anymore yeah i think that there are so many play- I, mean, I mean look at wedge events i mean our, like it, it i mean in covid it, we were close to this before but mm-hmm. uh did december double sell out in 7 minutes i wasn't going to sign up but a, a buddy of mine brian hauser he said hey do you want to play i said if you can get us signed up i'll play i just knew it was going to yeah. I didn't even bother. Someone was asking me on the course uh, about the Kisco Classic. This is a, maybe a week ago. I was doing some work and a newer player was asking me about it. This is before uh, Aaron canceled. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to be there, you know, when it always oh, like it opens. Oh, he was telling me it opened up at 9 p.m. on Friday or whatever. Mm-hmm. I said, that is you at your keyboard at nine, you know, with your registration already filled out. And clicking submit, submit, submit for you to get into that. He was like, "Really?" Mm. And uh, you know, events are sparse, and that's that's why that's happening. Well, yeah, now because now, it's like people are thinking twice about if you. There's always a responsibility to to run a tournament, but when you're running a tournament during the pandemic, you're taking on a, an added responsibility. And right. I think Wedge did a great job yesterday, but it's still that's a lot of extra work. Yeah, and the it, the other thing I I see too is I see a lot of tournament directors basically you know who are advocating for for running an event talking about all of the restrictions that they'll put in place. Mm-hmm. And you can put those restrictions in place, but unless you're going to you know actively monitor them, exactly. You know you can't pretend that they're there. You're basically trying to pre-exonerate yourself mm-hmm. for the way people are going to be. <laughs> yeah, you're still essentially you're still crossing your fingers that everything works yeah. out. And you know as the organizer as you sort of indicated, you are the person responsible for bringing 72 people to one place. So I, that factors in people's minds. And, you know, th- throughout the middle of the summer when cases were down and everybody was outdoors and, um, you know, I think it was responsible to to hold tournaments. I, you know, that it looks like now we're getting to a point where, you know, it's not responsible to bring 10 people to one place mm. um, from different places. You can argue about the responsibility of the 10 people. Yeah. But, you know. But if they were responsible in the first place, we wouldn't be where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're asking for people to be responsible. <laughs> What's up with that? Um, okay. So my original plan, we're at an hour. Um, yep. I still have a plenty of other questions, but my thinking is most of those questions I could ask with other people. So if I can get sure. you to agree now to come on again. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But before we go, I do, this should only take a couple minutes. I got a quick nine for you. Yep. All right. Yep. Whole one or question one, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Any reasoning or just or more logical? I, l- I like my science fiction uh, extrapolatable. Is, mm-hmm. is that a word? So Star Wars to me, as as science fiction as it is, it's like equal parts Hobbit. With Star with Star Trek, I basically get to to <laughs> you know to say okay, you know, sixty years from now, sure we'll be uh, you know in a nuclear winter, but shortly after that, you know, someone's going to invent warp drive, and then humanity takes on this whole new exciting adventure. Star Wars happened a long, long time ago in yeah, the look. galaxy far, far away. Exactly. That's not, don't get me wrong, I adore both franchises, but you asked me Star Wars or Star Trek, and the answer is Star Trek. All right. Uh, what is the longest non-Safari hole that you have played? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I've blocked, the, the, the answer is I've, I've blocked them out of my mind. There's a, uh, or, or there was a, a par six uh, like through the woods, 1100 feet or so down in, I'm forgetting the name of the park, but it's very well known in Pennsylvania. Nakamixon? Is it Nakamixon? I think well, it's Nakamixon. I've only heard that that's a really long park in Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody complains about the length. So, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to say that one. All right. But I don't know what that is. No. I, I, the, the answer is uh, a long, long holes I perform poorly on. Because I have a noodle arm, and I immediately block them out of my mind. Have you never played Mighty Gaul? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I have played the Mighty. What's the downhill there? That's uh, I don't. I, I'm never sure if it's a thousand or fifteen hundred. The eighteen, yeah, yeah, whole yeah. eighteen. I don't know either. Yeah, um, but there's two options there. All right, uh, <laughs> where are we at? Okay, if you could redo from scratch any one hole at FDR or Kisco, it has to still fit the geography. But what hole would you redo? That's a great question. I'm going to say, so first of all, I've considered redoing every goddamn hole at FDR <laughs> hundreds of times. <laughs> um, but uh, for fun, I'm going to say hole five white. I, I just had, <laughs> I had my best throw on there yesterday. Uh, we were playing the double basket doubles. Yeah. Did you get all the way down? I Well, what I thought was I, I threw a culver in forehand and I said, if I hit a tree, it's going to kick right towards the basket. And even if it kicks left, it's going to come back. It's a you know, very overstated. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. But if I can get it through there, I have a chance. So I threw it and it went straight really, but then it, it bent left, which I wasn't planning for it, but it went through everything and it landed about 50 feet from the basket. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's so much fun when that happens. What's more amazing is that was double basket doubles and Brian Hauser managed to bogey it. Oh, that's <laughs> Fired. He, he landed. And this is a question I have for you. Speaking of whole five. He landed on the rocks, the big rocks, on the inside on a hole five. So, like, past the basket, but those new big rocks that are there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he landed right there. I missed the putt, but I did save par. Um, did you – have I asked There's you a about a couple that? of great drives. Yeah. I, I, you kidding me? Um, and we still uh, we still took a bogey come overall <laughs> on the hole. I did, that being said, like, if uh, – uh... Uh, unless I had an amazing partner, I think like walking into hole five for double basket doubles, I'd take a bogey and walk away. That's true. That's what I, I think white hole. F- I will. One of my questions is going to be, it's not part of the nine. It was just a question I was going yeah. to ask you and get to. What is the hardest hole to par at, at either course as well? It's 12 yellow, 12, 12 yellow, yellow hands down. Okay. I th- Cause I was thinking five white. Oh, hardest hole to par. You yeah, know what? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me give that another thought. Uh, this conversation usually goes hardest to bird for me. Like, ah, um, gotcha. uh, so, so that's where I was at. Hardest hole to par. 16 whites. Tricky, but not, nah, not the part. But not, it's, it, yeah. it's really it's not impossible. Hard, yeah. Just, yeah, hardest hole to par. So I'm thinking of this in terms of, uh, just statistically like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, more, more fours than threes. Well, eight was a four for a minute it and was it got four, changed yeah. to a three, but I don't that's think right. he, he wasn't, I don't think it was a, I think it was a pretty, it was a tweener. Yeah, yeah. It was especially a tweener in the in the in the yellow layout, uh, like a, a the uh, a, as a as a white three. In other words, being in the in the harder layout as a three, I think it's it's about right. I'll say this about five. It's one of the few, and I'm just going through in my head, and I'm, I might might be off, but it seems to me it's one of the few that the pin location is not in an ideal spot for the yellow. 
is not in a spot where you'd want to throw to yellow to get to white. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I've been in that pit before and it is hard to get it's out. It's hard to get out of, yeah. That was important to us on every aspect, on, on every hole when we added the second layout. We really tried now nah, and and that's a place where where it really worked in the front. You know, mm-hmm. a place where it really doesn't work in the front is uh say hole four. You know, a, a good drive for yellow is a good drive for white. Um yeah. but but five definitely, you know what's good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander. Uh, I think five, five is a good choice. I think five is hard to par. Uh, I initially said 12. I don't think I, you know, I think 12, um, you know, if you play within yourself, Mm -hmm. you're going to get your par. I think five can be very punishing. Um, It's between, I I think it's between five white and seven white. Well, the thing is with five, well, with 12, as long as you don't hit any trees, you don't have to have a bomb arm to get the five. That's right. And you can and you can avoid the trees. Exactly. Five asks you to do a lot. Five asks you to throw downhill for one thing, yeah. which which not a lot of people do well. Five asks you to avoid what I consider to be a luck tree, which is the leaner in the middle. It's too far out for me to call it a skill obstacle. Mm-hmm. So I really think that two two, you know, nine fifty plus rated players can throw essentially perfect drives and somebody could be absolutely screwed and somebody could be in the circle. Yeah. So there's a lot that can happen to you. Also, wind tends to come up that hill. I, I could argue for five white. All right. Um we're up to question four. Would you rather throw one Bill Newman sized disc or one hundred disc sized Bill Newmans? Oh, that's easy. A hundred disc-sized Bill Newmans. I feel like that would be really good for stress relief. And you get a little practice. Yep. All right. Um, what do you feel is the strongest part of your game? Um, it's my approach game. What is your weakest? That's variable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it's my it's my drive. My 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 distance right now is what's keeping me from competing with better players. My putting is good enough. Mm-hmm. My approach game is better than many people's who, uh, whose overall games are better than mine. My approach game is pretty solid. And my putting game can be, you know, can be brought back. If I decide to, you know, practice 15 minutes a day for 10 days, my putting game is is right back. But somehow my form is is wasting power and, and I can't throw as far as I should be able to. So it's definitely my drive. All right. Uh, what is the best score to par that you can remember on a disc golf course? Uh... I shot 11 down at Kisco. That's my best score to par. All right. Uh, better pinball alley, 16 FDR, 12 Kisco. That's a tough one. I have three aces on 16 FDR, so I assume it's 12 Kisco. <laughs> okay, good answer. <laughs> um, what is your favorite hole that you've designed? My favorite hole that I've designed, uh, it's, it's going to be between two. Uh, it's either hole nine, Kisco. But I don't think that's really it. I think it's hole 10, yellow. FDR, FDR is, is my favorite, yeah. You know, I, I I think we even talked about this. I used to have a bias. I don't have that any longer. Um, I used to, It used to be a mess down there. And the last couple of years, I don't remember the last time it's been, you know, I don't yeah. remember when that was, but it's. I, I, I knew that once I cleared it and took some of the invasive brush and vines out of there, that the canopy would just start taking start to take care of the floor in there. Uh, and that has happened to me. I'm proud of the hole because I, I really think it's the, I think it's the best second shot on the course. I think that second shot is, is challenging. And not only that, uh, what I really love about it is, is the second shot leaves you lots of options as to how are you, how are you going to attack it? You know where the pin is. There's three ways to get in at it and they're all, they're all compelling. So, I don't necessarily do the same thing every time, even, even if I land in the same spot, um, depending on how I feel and, and, you know, how I'm throwing, I might throw a, you know, a hyzer into the first gap low and hard and, and have it finish towards the pin. But I might try to hyzer flip something that goes down through the last gap. Yeah, that's my favorite. Nice. And when do you expect to play your next round of disc golf? With the oh, injury? that's a toughie. <laughs> uh, I expect to try on Wednesday. Um, but what I'll likely do is try and walk the course, uh, with some of the deadbeats and I'll probably drop out halfway through. Nice. Well, Jack Bradley, thank you for joining me. Uh, good luck in the election and get well soon. Thanks for having me, Pat. I hope to see you on the course soon. And I want to thank Amanda Geffen on Long Island because I can now say sweet up in sign language. So I'm doing it. Hudson Valley. I said, I'm doing it right now. (laughs) That's so awesome. 
I know it's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks again, man. Take it easy, man.